for the last several years, my wife's been attending what we call a Bible study fellowship. And because it's gone online, because of the pandemic, then we have found ourselves then uh, that the girls in our family have kind of strong-armed us to join. And so last winter and spring, we were attending, we signed up for this Bible study fellowship that would involve, uh, there was some weekly homework. We worked our way th through the book of Genesis, which took basically 30 weeks to work our way through it. And so there would be homework every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. We would join in our small group, so it would cover all the time zones that covered off my family. And as well, there would be some reading and uh, video. But I found that my sons particularly enjoyed the study going deeper in God's Word. But what struck me as working through the book of Genesis, as I read the accounts of these the lives of the patriarchs, I found men and women who speak so much, who seem so real in terms of uh, the world in which I live. You see, it's often so easy that when we look at the Word of God, we look at um, men of God or patriarchs, and we want to paint them with what I would call pious brushes, and we airbrush the mistakes. But when we come to the Word of God, we see that that is not the case at all. In the Word of God, we see that God reveals these men of God that obviously had faith to follow God, but in, in the midst of that, they had real-life struggles. They had heartaches, pain, family problems, financial problems, and the list would go on. And so not only did they have failure and sin, but we had this constant theme, this hand of God on their lives that would speak very vividly to God's hand on our own. And so this morning, I want to look at Jacob and and one of the places where we read about Jacob would be in Genesis 28, 15. And it's, it's not Genesis 32. I will get there, so bear with me. But in Genesis 28, we have Jacob now fleeing his brother Esau. And there at Bethel, God meets him, and he says to him, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you till I have done what I have promised you. And so this morning, as I said, I would like us to take a few minutes and... Um, take a look at, at Jacob's life. And, and, but to do that, and I particularly I want to look at this struggle with the angel that, as I said, I often find is a bit of a, a weird or difficult text to get my mind around what's going on. But before I can sort of draw insights out of what God has been speaking to me from that passage, I need to give you a bit of a thumbnail sketch of Jacob's life. So for you that are new to the Bible and the stories and and I saw, because I, I know what it's like coming into church um, at, you know, at age I was, at any age where you, people come in and they have all these stories and they know them. And then there's many of us that it's all new. So just bear with me. And if I lose you, send me an email and I'll apologize. But Jacob's father was a guy named Isaac. He was the promised son. His grandfather was Abraham. Jacob, when we look at it, was a twin. And so Jacob's mother Rebecca, when the twins were born, the older brother Esau came out, and it says he was red and he was hairy, and they named him Esau. And Jacob coming out of the womb, it wasn't his head that came out first, it was his little arm came out, and his hand was holding on to the heel of his brother, and then as Jacob was delivered. And so Jacob was always viewed in life as kind of a grasper, the guy trying to get what he wanted to, to one-up whoever he would cross. And so we see then as Jacob that characterized as the pages of Scripture unfold, because you look at Jacob's life, and, and realistically, his life covered Genesis 25 to Genesis 50, half the book of Genesis, I might add. 
And so we see his brother Esau, the older brother, he would have the birthright, the right to the largest share of father's inheritance. Well, what does Jacob do? Well, one day when Esau was famished, he said, I won't give you any food till you sell me the birthright. Um, but Jake, Jacob's classic act was when his father was old and he was blind and they thought he was going to die or daddy thought he was going to die. Jacob dressed up as his brother Esau and went in and said he was Esau to steal the blessing away from his brother, from his older brother, to which Esau then, um, Esau wanted to kill Jacob. And so we see then the pages of scripture now narrowing in on Jacob's life then at this point in time. And so as he flees Esau, he comes to, his, has his first encounter of, with God um, there in Bethel. And there he had the picture, the vision of God. And there was a staircase or a ladder and God was at the top. That was at the point when Jacob had spent the night propped up on a rock as his pillow. But then we see as God unfolds his work in Jacob's life, that Jacob ultimately met his, his, uh, his match in his father-in-law, his uncle, Laban. Laban's, I guess, classic act was there again because we saw through Laban, God often was bringing back the consequences that Jacob inflicted on others. Laban was bringing them back onto Jacob. And so, as I said, the classic act was on Jacob's wedding night. He had loved the youngest daughter, Rachel, and then Laban... What he did was then, through that wedding ceremony, there was a girl there that was veiled, never spoke, and it wasn't until Jacob woke up on, after his wedding night that he realized he hadn't married Rachel, he had married Leah. And so with that, Laban, again, the conniving, manipulating man that he was, bargained for another seven years of labor from Jacob. So we find now here... After 20 years, God came and spoke to Jacob and told him to return to the land of his fathers, to the land of his relatives. And that, which brings us into Genesis 32, the text that we want to focus on this morning. This would have been a 500-mile journey. And so, so there, I know when we've done major hikes, the most you would normally walk in a day might be 20 miles, 30 kilometers. So if you had a bunch of young children and flocks and herds, you might have gotten, say, 15 miles or 20 kilometers in a day. So we're looking at a journey of five to six weeks. Now coming into chapter 32, so that to prepare Jacob and as well to center our attention in terms of what's going on, Genesis 32 opens with Jacob now seeing angels. And so Jacob at that point named um, the place Manahim, two camps, because he said in his mind there was his camp traveling through back to Canaan. And there was the the camp of God in, in the angels. And so Jacob, as he's preparing, because he realized he's going to have to deal with his brother Esau at some point in time, sends ahead a message to Esau saying that they're coming. And so now as they're traveling along, Esau's, or Jacob's servants now come back to him and they say, Jacob, we got a bit of a problem here. Esau's coming with 400 men. So Esau, it was apparent then to Jacob at that point in time that it wasn't going to be a happy family gathering when they get together. And so Jacob realized that Esau was coming with the ability to retaliate. And so we see at that point in time in, at these events, again, I suspect Jacob, they were walking when all of this was occurring. It says in verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 32, in great fear and distress, 
Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, he thought. If Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. And so, and many of these events are all occurring late in the day, at night, and throughout the night. And so we see here, it was again later in the day when this all transpired. And so, as I mentioned, it wasn't just Jacob and his family and a couple backpacks um, with some tents and a pup tent that were traveling through to Canaan making this journey, but it would have been like a small town. Jacob himself had enormous wealth, so there would have been flocks and there would have been herds and servants. So you may have had, I don't know, two, three, four hundred people at least that were traveling with them in this community. And so Jacob now, with the fear of retaliation at Esau's hand, what, what does he do? And you see this man basically with all cylinders firing, I would say, as he tries to, to deal with this situation. So I, I want you to notice what he does. So in verses 7 and 8, it says he prepares. He had named the place two camps because there was God's camp and, and Jacob's camp. And he uses that idea then to, to divide the people into two groups so that if one group is attacked, at least the other would escape. They wouldn't all be destroyed. We come into verses 9 to 12 in our text, and it says that Jacob prayed. And so at this point, he calls out to God, recalling the fact that it was God himself who told him to go back to his family, to his land, to his relatives. And his relatives would have included Esau. He acknowledges God's kindness in him, um, how God had been with him faithfully preparing and protecting and providing through him for the last 20 years. And then he provides. And so I see in Jacob kind of the, the, uh, as I said, I see all, all five cylinders firing here as he's, as he's then thinking, well, how do I pacify this guy? And so he puts together five flocks. He has a flock of 220 goats with the servants, the shepherds to manage them, and he sends them off. And he tells them that they were gifts for Esau. Then the next thing he does, he takes a flock of 220 sheep. And again, probably putting distance, maybe a mile between them, I'm not sure. He sends them off again to see to, as a gift for Esau. He then takes 30 camels and their young, again, putting some distance, sends them off. He then takes 40 candles, uh, four, 50 cattle, 40 cows and 10 bulls. Why he needed 10 bulls is another question that I'm not going to go there. But again, he sends them off and he does the same with 30 donkeys. He sends them off as gifts to pacify. But I keep wondering, is Jacob then the military strategist? Because if I have 400 men coming with a possible attack, well, am I going to slow them down and cause confusion if I throw a bunch of animals in the mix? The text doesn't say. But it's at this point they reach the Jabok stream that Greg read, mentioned in the text that was read. And so the Jabok not, in Israel, it's a semi-arid location where they're going through. So you would have a significant dry season where there'd be not a drop of rain for four or five months, and you would have rain in, in the winter months. And so the Jabbok, though, was a perennial stream that would ultimately flow into the Jordan. So you can pull out your map and see where that's located. But in terms of uh, in that area, one of the major difficulties, if they did have a major rain, these streams that would have a very low flow of water would become a raging torrent, almost impassable. Our passage doesn't tell us what time of year this was occurring, but you see now that it says in the passage that it's night and the sun is set. 
And I'm not sure if he's being like me when there's a certain thing I want to get done or a place I want to go when we're traveling and I'm constantly interrupted and having to stop. And I'm saying, well, we're not stopping till we get to Sault Ste. Marie or whatever it is. So as Jacob saying, well, we've got to get across here before we set up a camp and spend the night. And so for some reason, although I suspect the sun had set, but there's still some daylight in their midst, Jacob sends his family and all his possessions across the stream. So they would have had to walk through this stream and set up camp on the other side. And you're also wondering, is it Jacob, as I said, as I'm trying to think how his mind works, is, is again, is he thinking from a military point of view that everybody's walking here, and if the messengers has come, come back, Esau can't be very far behind, and as he's thinking, well, if I'm going to be confronted by Esau, the last thing I want is us, and it's going to happen tomorrow, the last thing I want is us to be walking through a stream where we're exposed and we're vulnerable and we can't easily run away. We're not sure. And so Jacob now has got everyone across. It says it's night. So is, is it dark at this point? Again, the text doesn't say. But he's kind of pulling that classic dad thing, you know what I mean? where you've told everyone what to do and you've sent them away and then it's kind of who's going to take the last look at the campsite and make sure nothing is left or no one in his case is left behind and so is he there it says he was alone looking around was he in thought was he in prayer but then as he's there scouting out what's occurred maybe thinking about what's going to transpire tomorrow what does he do it's almost as if as from the text it says he turned his head it doesn't say he turned his head, but it's as if he turned his head and there was a man standing there that started pushing him around. And so it says in the text, and we don't, as I said, it doesn't say when it started. Did it go on all night, just a few hours before dawn? But it, basically the thrust of the text, we're now at the breaking of dawn. You know that time before the sun has risen early in the morning, I guess, you know, if it was today, July 18th, it would be around 4.35, 5.30 in the morning. Um, that the, Before the dawn, as, as the dawn is breaking before the, before the sunrise. And they've been wrestling and pushing each other all night long. I, I doubt it's not a picture of a fist-to-cuff kind of fight. But there, again, I see this struggle and this wrestling and this tussle that's going on. But at some point during the process, what happened to Jacob? Because Jacob in our text keeps saying, I will not let you go till what? Till you bless me. So Jacob obviously at some point had understood that the person he was fighting with, wrestling with, pulling and struggling with, had to be angelic in nature. It wasn't just a man. And so we see now then in our text, it says, the man he's struggling with, it says, well, I can't overpower him. Not on these terms, in human terms. So he reaches around and he pinches his hip. And he damages the, either the tendons or the muscles or even possibly the socket itself. And so Jacob is now in pain. But what happens? Because it's almost as if he thought, well, if I pinch him and give him some pain in his, his hip, as it were, would he stop fighting? But Jacob, it says, as I said, it says he wouldn't let him go unless he blessed him. And so I find, as I said in this text, um, very interesting because at this point, as we go on, we'll see Jacob named the place Peniel. That Jacob at some point realized that the person he was talking to was none other than God himself. But what does God do? 
God doesn't say, well, you do this and this, I'll bless you. Or he pronounces a blessing. He says, well, what is your name? And you have Jacob at that point wondering if he has to kind of mumble, well, my name is Grasper, Wrestler, Struggler. And we see at that point that God turns that around and he says, then he said in verse, in the verse there, it says, then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with man and have overcome. As I said, I look at that text and I have all kinds of thoughts. Why was God struggling with Jacob? What was he doing? Um, was God preparing him for the battle um, that he knew he had to fight? Scripture doesn't tell us. But as I look at the text, I would say there's kind of three major points that I want to center our thoughts around this morning as we pull this text apart. I want to consider the role of solitude, the role of solitude in Jacob's life and the need for solitude in our own. I want to consider the reward that he found in the struggle, the reward that Jacob found, and the reward that we need to pursue in our own lives. And I also want to, to look at this resolve that is found in submission. And so as I say, when I think of the role of solitude, I find it very interesting when I look at this text, that when you see, as it clearly states in verse 24, so Jacob was left how? He was left alone. And when you look at Jacob's life, Jacob's most significant encounters with God occurred where? Occurred when he was alone. He was, he was at Bethel fleeing Esau. He alone, he saw, alone, and I would, might add desperate, God revealed himself. We go into Genesis 31, and there when he's struggling with the injustices he was experienced at the hand of his father-in-law, we see God reaching in and speaking to Jacob alone in the field, so they had to call people out to him, telling him that it was now time to go back to the land of his fathers. And so, and here again in verse 32, we have Jacob alone on the east side of the, of the Jabbok as we were. And I, I might add, when I look at the pages of Scripture, I think it's important that all of us understand that God himself is consistently calling us through the pages of Scripture into a place of solitude, into a place of quietness, into a place where we each find ourselves alone with God. Um, and that constant call is throughout Scripture. Just think of some of the verses. Think of Psalm 46, verse 10. And many of you, your parents or your grandmother might have had it as a verse on, on the, the wall of her house. What does it say? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And I would say this becomes probably particularly important in the wired lives that many of us lead. Often, I often find myself wanting to look at my phone first thing in the morning. I now have to do a COVID self-assessment if I want to go into the office. So I do it and send it off first thing, because otherwise I'll forget. And at the end of, you know, before I go to bed at night, I often want to look at my phone and often, in my case, kind of look at my Twitter feed and Instagram pictures that I hope some of my kids will post so I can at least see my grandchildren. We're all wired differently. But as I look at Scripture, we see that to build wholeness into my life and wellness into my soul, there's a role of quiet and solitude that needs to be built in. Just think of the daily rhythm on, in a week that God built us 
to incorporate rest in terms of a Sabbath rest on, on a weekly basis as well. And, and so in the same way, though, from a spiritual sense, I need to bring that quietness if I want to encounter God. And, and that is often difficult. And when I'm dealing with my Alpha friends, and it's maybe kind of a new experience at all, I'm often saying to build that solitude in my life, most spiritual disciplines occur through the development of spiritual habits. And so you could say, well, I'm going to spend an hour tomorrow, just like I could say I could go run for an hour tomorrow. Well, I could do it. I could run for an hour tomorrow, but I'll never do it the rest of the week. So I often, when my, my alpha friend's saying, make a commitment, 10, 15 minutes a day. Find a place where you're quiet, where you're unplugged. I'd probably say no music, just where you can be alone, some spend time maybe to read God's Word and pray and allow God through His Word to speak to you. And I would say, make a commitment 10, 15 minutes. And if it's a habit you're trying to develop, I would say make a commitment to do it for three weeks. Now, you have to find in your life, you might have a bunch of little kids, and find where that's going to work for you. But the principle is the same, that how do I build this solitude? So just as we look at that, and even from a physical perspective, we see God recognizes that, as I said, Sabbath rest, that Sabbath was given for man. But in the same way, Jesus dealing with the disciples when they had the constant throng of ministry coming at them. Mark 6.31, we have that verse that says, Then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So there's physical benefits in it, but spiritually we're called into that place of solitude. So we often think of the... the um, I was going to say, in the Sermon on the Mount, but in the Lord's Prayer that many of us would know by heart, um, it says in the verses leading up to it, but when you pray, go where? It says, go in your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So in the same way, we have that same principle that Jacob have experienced, that to build solitude and aloneness in his life, because it's in that place, I will ultimately experience God, the role of solitude. But also, as I look at my text, there's also what I would say a reward in struggle. And as I said, the, Jacob, the name Jacob carries the idea of wrestling. And you, as you read the book of Genesis, there's always these re repeating themes, repeating images, and so even here, you've got this wordplay occurring. The Jacob means wrestle. Jabbok means wrestle. And so you kind of look at it, and we, don't, we lose it in the English translation for sure, but it's uh, wrestle at the wrestle, wrestling with God, as he emphasizes his point. Now, I want to make a couple comments on Jacob's personality, because Jacob, as we look at it, was what? Well, he was competitive, and Jacob was aggressive, for sure. And those traits are not wrong. Because even God himself was wrestling with Jacob. You see, I look at Jacob, and if I was hiring somebody, he would be the guy I would want to hire. I'd probably say to the person beside me, well, I sure hope I can channel his energy, because if I can, I'd have a great. He was smart, perceptive, and aggressive. And we often, from a Christian perspective, um, often look at a good Christian character as often being maybe a little more introverted, more docile, more pastoral. And I would say we obviously have the fruits of the Spirit that we bring into our personality traits, but the wrestling and striving, there was nothing wrong with that. It was a good thing. It's usually what we do in error with those traits. 
But I find this passage, as I've looked at it, so helpful in terms of my own life because it shows how Jacob actively rolls up his sleeves and he makes preparations and human efforts, and those things are good. God asks, God often in our own lives, works in our lives, but he asks us to participate in the process with our sleeves rolled up. So as it were, we, um, we're working out our salvation. We're allowing God to work in us and through us as we are actively engaged. But often the problem I find is if you're particularly wired to being competitive and so you've got your plans and preparations, in that situation, I find it so often so easy to just give God a, a passing glance, maybe a quick prayer at the end after you've done everything, as if you don't need him. Now, Jacob's pointing me to something different, or at least God's teaching Jacob something different in this text, because he tells us in this text, ultimately, that God is asking each of us to bring that competitiveness, competitiveness and that aggressiveness into my relationship with God. Jacob was commended. Why? Because he was a passive? No. Jacob was commended a prince of God because he wrestled with God. And so, as I said, Jacob was wrestling. Why? He was wrestling to win. And even when he had a pain in his hip, in his leg, and he wanted to give up, or I would want to give up and go have a coffee and a donut or something else, Jacob hung on. He wouldn't let go. So Jacob, after wrestling all night, exhausted in all those situations, would not let go of God in that situation. And it does force me to ask a question, or to take my own spiritual pulse, what's the intensity of my relationship with God? You see, so it's so easy in my Christian experience that my Christianity is my culture. It's, it's just something that I do, you know. I'll, we go to church, and we read our Bible, and we pray, and we say grace before we eat, and we don't swear too much, and we watch what we watch, and all those kind of things. And we look at Christianity as just something that we do as an add-on, as the culture, how I live. Yet when we look at Genesis 32, we, see we have this God who's calling us to something deeper. He's calling us into something where we sink our teeth, where we roll up our sleeves, where we make God and the pursuit of God the first priority in my life. And so we see that here in Genesis 32, God is calling us into something far more than just an add-on in terms of what I do. Psalm 36, or Psalm 63 rather, says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole body longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Psalm 42, you could add, as a deer pants for the water. So we see here this earnestness, this striving, this hunger for God. You see it all through the pages of Scripture. I love that one beatitude, and I often come back to it in Matthew 5, verse 6, where it says, Blessed are those who what? Who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So it doesn't say they were filled, but God brought them to the place where they hunger and thirsted for those things because the filling came after that fact. Right now we've had a lot of rain, but when it was hot and dry uh, a month ago, often you look at your crops in your field or, or your, your garden and you see in the heat what happens. Well, there's not much growth on top. The corn sure takes off when it rains, but, but the roots are going deeper to find moisture. And so in your Christian life, you will find that it's not always like this. 
And it's certainly not always a mountaintop experience, but it's a journey where there's ups and there's downs, that there are seasons in our Christian experience, sometimes as part of my own sin, and sometimes because it's where God is taking me, where we may feel that God is distant. Do you know what I mean? You've been there? When I'm reading Scripture, it's almost like the words are just lying on the page when I hope they would be lighting up the switchboard in my mind. When I pray, it's, it's almost, well, it's just hitting the ceiling. I'm just talking to myself. And in worship, well, I have the words and I maybe enjoy the tunes as long as they're modern enough, I might add, and fast enough for you or when, however you're wired. But your heart isn't in it. And I would, I've met too many people when that, they get to that situation and they want to let go because they say, well, it's not real. Well, I look at Jacob, I look at what Jesus is saying, and I see that God is calling us to go deeper. There is times when God may seem distant. It's not that he is distant, but he brings us through those periods so that we will sink our teeth and struggle more. Well, I see that in Jacob. Even with the pain in his hip, what did he do? He hung on. He went deeper. And I find it speaking to me, especially how many people seem disengaged, in part because of what we've gone through the last few months with this pandemic. Scripture is very clear that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some. And part of that is, even as in my Christian life, as it goes up and down, those, those weekly routines and community of other Christians keep me moving forward. And so, as I said, it's very, it's very easy in the midst of this to, to maybe become disengaged, not just with my church family, but even become disengaged with God. But Jacob reminds me that God is in control. The, there were still angels in that situation. And despite the situation, God has a purpose and a plan that he's carrying out, but he's asking me to struggle after him in the midst of it. Hosea says in Hosea 12, in the womb, referring to Jacob, what did he do? Remember the little hand grabbing that heel? He grasped his brother's heel, and as a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. You see, at that point in response to this, God changed Jacob's name from wrestler that might have negative connotations. Do you know what I mean? Who wants to be called conniver, wrestler? And he changed it to wrestle with God. And so the question really becomes, as I look at this text, what name would God give me? See, I've got to bring some of this home, and I see our time is ticking on, but I need to ask you the question, are you hungry and thirsting for God? Do you have a desire for the things of God, or is it just something you tag on to the rest of the effects of your life? You may be sitting here and, and the, uh, this morning and you're curious about God and, and the Bible, but I need to tell you, church is not something that we just do. But God, just like Jacob, had found himself in this vigorous, striving relationship with God himself, God is calling each of us into that same thing. And we can look at that because it, it gives us such a picture because just as God had come down in the purpose, in the name, person of that angel, God also came in the name, person of Jesus Christ to pay the price for our sins. And God is giving us, calling us into that relationship. He's offering us that gift of salvation. But just like Jacob was holding on and not letting go, 
He's asking us by faith to take that gift that God is offering to him. And so we see we have this God who's pursuing us, is calling us to actively pursue him in the same way. And in conclusion, I just want to, just a couple thoughts on the, the resolve that's required in submission. So we not only just passively accept, but we move forward in that acceptance. You see, at this point, the sun is rising over Jacob as he's limping at the place that he called Peniel. And so as Jacob moves forward across the Jabbok to join his family, to, to ultimately confront Esau, because Esau was there, just quickly showed up, Jacob was coming into the greatest struggle of his life, wasn't he? So when something comes up that it's not expected, I'm usually, ex my mind is racing, I'm exhausted the next day just because of all the thinking I had to do. I might wake up in the middle of the night, probably 2 a.m., thinking about those things, wondering if I can go back to sleep. But Jacob now not only had gone through that, he had been walking for months, or a month at least, at this point in time. He had stayed up all night, so he had the fog and the, the confusion in your mind when you're just driving for some strong coffee. And he would have been either at this point hot and sweaty or cold and clammy because he had been hot and sweaty wrestling with the angel all night. And to add to this, Jacob now had to prepare his family ultimately for a battle. But I look at this. He couldn't even fight, could he? Jacob would be limping across the Jabbok. If he thought some of them could run away, he certainly couldn't do it because he could hardly walk. God had brought him to the place of being totally broken, weak, and vulnerable. Yet we read in Scripture that is often the place where God's greatest work is done. Think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about his thorn in the flesh. And in there, in conclusion there, he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, for when I am weak, I am strong. Consistently through the pages of Scripture, and maybe you've experienced it in your own life, that God's power in our lives is most vividly displayed when? It's most vividly displayed in weakness. God is asking us to go forward, and, and he's given us good works to do, but he's, he's obviously works in them, and he's through them. But there is this point in submission where God is asking us to accept the things that have come in my life, those places in my life where God has pinched us. It could be sins I struggle with, or financial, or family, or it covers the whole gamut that God has allowed to come into my life or have come into my life under God's direction and control for sure. But God is asking us to accept that pinch, not to wallow in self-pity, not to run and hide, not to give up. But he calls us in that situation to accept it and move forward, limp and all. It's interesting, I was just thinking about when you have a young horse, you often want to hobble that horse you would tie the two front legs or back legs together so it couldn't walk well. And they would find you would often hobble a horse so that the horse would learn that in the situation where it's uncomfortable, it can at least trust its handler. So that if it ever gets in an uncomfortable situation, it doesn't thrash around, 
but it waits on the handler to give direction and control. And in the same way we see here in our passage, God hobbled Jacob. But in a very real sense, God does that in each of our lives. And in the midst of that, he calls us, doesn't he? Just as Jesus said, that if any man comes after me and wants to be my disciple, what should he do? He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so I guess the real question is, I look at how God worked in Jacob's life, broken before blessing, that as I looked, if you go into chapter 31, we see Jacob then, even with the pain in his hip, would bow down before his brother Esau. But broken before blessing, moving forward, limp and all, the message as I look at this text is God is speaking to each of us, asking us to bring more solitude into our relationship with God, to roll up our sleeves and struggle forward in, in my following God, and at the same time, submitting and resolving myself to accept what is ever God has brought into my life from his hand and by faith move forward to follow him. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to each of us this morning in those areas of our lives that we need to deal with, that we would again, like Jacob, would roll up our sleeves and do whatever it takes to follow you. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.